Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday the 25th of October in Sydney, Australia. It's probably Thursday somewhere you are in the world because uh, we live in the future here in uh, in Australia. I think it's only New Zealand and a few other um, countries in that part of the world are ahead of us. You are joining us on episode 28 of the It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about everything tech, social media, um, how it impacts the world, how it relates to business. Uh, my regular co-host, James Peter, who's also my co-founder at 89N and Manage Flitter, he's still um, in New Zealand, funnily enough, on honeymoon. But I've got a very special guest co-host with me live from New York, Manhattan. I have on the end of my Skype line, Jeremy Goldman, who's the author of Going Social and also the founder and CEO of Firebrand Group, Germany. J- J- sorry, it's been a long week. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. I kind of, I, I th- thank you very much. You know, and I kind of like Germany in some ways. You know, <laughs> it make me stand out a little bit better. Um, let's get straight into it, Jeremy. There's a lot of tech stories going on this week, as usual. Um, some of the most interesting ones that that I've um, picked out. There was a Someone in the White House, and uh, an official on the White House National Security Council, was fired last week because he was uncovered as the the person behind a a Twitter handle called uh, Natsek Wonk, which I believe was tweeting out um, some type of satirical tweets around uh, the, the the NSA. Am I right? Yeah, you know, so um, uh, th- 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 it was a really interesting story, and it actually just kind of picked up uh, steam. Uh, stateside over the last uh, 24 hours. And I think that actually uh, part of the reason why this was such a huge thing is besides the fact that it's the White House. Um, this is the kind of thing that at a $10 million company, uh, you would hopefully even have a, uh, a, a social media policy, strict regulations, and even a little bit of intelligence as to what people are talking about uh, about your company, right? So it stands to reason that the most powerful gov- government in the world is going to have better controls in place and no such luck. So it's a, it, it's a little crazy to say the least. And part of it is a judgment thing. Uh, you know, you, you have to, I mean, don't you think you have to in any situation like this make sure that you're hiring people who aren't going to engage in this type of behavior in the first place? I think it's a very tricky thing um, to do with such a large organization. I definitely don't have any particular agenda to to defend the White House, but I think more than anything, it, it highlights the complexity around this type of environment where everyone is a publisher, everyone has a voice, everyone can have an audience. And if you don't have team members or, or um, you know, buy-in from everyone that's part of your organization, um, a lot of things can go wrong very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and, and I think it, it kind of goes to, uh, you know, having the right policies in place, having the right people. What I'm saying, by the way, is not political at all. It's just about the fact that this should not happen in <laughs> in an organization and you you, you're right i mean this is the kind of thing that you do have to guard against uh nowadays because it could happen to anyone you can't uh listen to this story if you're a business and say there's no way this could happen to me because it could you just have to take as many steps as possible to avoid it 
I would imagine it's happening a lot more than people realize, and it's 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 very easy to create um you know fake accounts, satirical accounts, and uh, and and have your alter ego um, tweet out, and no one really ever works out who you are and what's happening. You know, yeah, exactly. Now we're a little bit past it in some ways, but I think one thing that's really interesting is the rise of the the personal smartphone, where it used to be people had uh, you know crappy phones more or less, and they maybe had a smartphone from their business, and then the business the business had controls in place on that phone. But now it's since everybody's bringing their own smartphone, and they're expected to do business on that smartphone for it personally they install apps you might not know about they'll do things that you're not going to be privy to so it's basically just you know like accidents are waiting to to happen because you can't say i'm going to go into your personal smartphone and that you're paying for and monitor uh what's happening on it it's uh so so it is definitely a tricky thing and it's uh it's it's really only going to get trickier so more than more than anything, you have to hire right, even if you're the White House, and you have to. There has to be the trust in your team, and um, I know with with my team on our on my end here, um, there's there's I have absolute trust in my team, and if I ever feel that um, that trust is lost, that's why I take that I take that feeling incredibly seriously when I start feeling that. Of course, we only got a team of. 10 or so here so it's a lot easier but it just that that complexity compounds exponentially as your team grows yeah exactly you know and 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 also i mean we see with all the news about uh uh, twitter trying to grow and with their ipo coming up i mean that just becomes so important especially looking at the fact that uh they're not really that. Uh, they're not making the money that they'd like to be making yet, right? Uh, so it even becomes even more important to look at, uh, you know, like the human personnel in a company like uh, like a Twitter or like any startup that's trying to monetize their business. Uh, it, it comes down to the people uh, because ultimately that's that's what's going to make you successful or not. And speaking about Twitter, they uh, announced this week that they've set up a one billion dollar credit line so next time uh, you look at your overdraft facilities uh, compare it to twitter's one billion dollar credit line so that's that's going to allow them to to buy companies very quickly or or act very quickly it's essentially just a, a, a funding option um jeremy in new york is there a lot of buzz i mean uh, uh, um, twitter have chosen the new york stock exchange over nasdaq which was uh, to list on which was a little bit of a surprise uh, new york must be happy with that you know, you know, and, and I think obviously, like the financial markets, they're very close to that. And it's interesting to to the standard investor in a lot of ways. Um, they're not. I don't think that people are as concerned as to where it would actually uh, list itself. They were more so concerned about those numbers that were coming out about how far along they were in terms of monetizing the business. Were they making more money? Were they losing money? How fast are our ad sales growing? Uh, so I think that those are the things that probably people are paying more attention to. Um, but it is interesting, the whole uh, note about the, the credit line, um, which I think uh, that, they, that they said basically, I believe it's, it's uh, maturing in 2018, which lets, uh, you know, in a lot of uh, ways, it lets the market know that Twitter's in it for the long haul. Uh, they're not necessarily, um, you know, going to, to uh, 
I want to say monetize and uh, destroy their platform just in the name of becoming more profitable in the first year or two. But they do have, and I think it's probably the right thing for investors to look at. It's it they're looking at it strategically and they're trying to figure out well how can they make this business succeed over the long haul and really create a platform that people who don't normally engage on Twitter you know will feel comfortable on. What's your view? I mean, have you read the prospectus? Or I would imagine you've at least seen some of the articles summarizing some of the numbers. What's uh, what's your view on the the state of play with the the Twitter listing? You know, I, I've read the numbers. It's actually not uh, – there, there wasn't that much that, that was surprising, uh, and, you know, in, in terms of the prospectus. I mean, I think that uh, people weren't so surprised by – um, by how they were doing from an advertising standpoint, they just weren't that mature uh, in that regard in terms of how long Twitter's been been uh, trying to really get serious about monetizing itself and its initial um, uh, attempts to do so were you know kind of not really juvenile but just not as mature as they have become. Uh, now you see them really stepping things up in a lot of different ways uh, recently, you know, uh, introducing new ad products, uh, allowing new types of targeting, t- custom tools to schedule for paid posts, um, I believe up to a year in the future. So uh, so you can start planning your, uh, your um, Thanksgiving and Black Friday shopping in the States uh, for 2014 now using tw- Twitter ads. So, um, so I think that the... the a lot of the surprise will be uh, a lot of the things that people are going to wait and see is what other types of interesting ad products and revenue streams are they going to open up over the next uh, six months or so. Um, so are you uh, you going to buy some Twitter shares? Are you how bullish on uh, on them are you? You know, it's it's one of those things where uh, you, you can have to if you've got a football team that you follow. You you need to at the very least get some of their merchandise. Yeah, I think I think that there's there's a lot um, there's still a lot of risk in the Twitter stock. I think it's uh, it's 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 it can really go either way. I agree with you. I'm I'm uh, you know it's the team that we we backing and and we love it. But looking at the numbers and reading the prospectus. Um, I can see them tweaking a few things with relating to TV and celebrities and sports. And um, I believe they shut down their music app that they actually was an Australian app. It was a it was a, a crew in um, Brisbane that they actually bought um, uh, an app called We Are Hunted and they tried to turn it into Twitter music. And I believe this yep. m- this week they actually shut it down. You know, so yeah, Twitter. Twitter music is one of those things that I'm curious kind of what you think about it. But, uh, well, first off, I think it's actually not down yet, but they're looking into doing that soon. That's my understanding. Right. I mean, and I actually uh, just, uh, you know, did, did like a, a quick check on that. But, but, but it's one of those things that, to be honest, I mean, I didn't quite get it. I don't, I'm, I'm curious about, you, uh, you know, what your thoughts about it uh, were. But I kind of thought, well, listen, there are enough things they're trying to do. They can try to do those perfectly. 
Um, and this just seemed to be a little bit of a distraction where they would be an also ran. That's just my opinion, but I'm you know curious what you think. Well, James, uh, James Peter, the, the uh, my co-founder, he was a huge fan of We Are Hunted, and then Twitter shut down the app, and then they relaunched it, and I believe he never quite got back into it. I I never quite got into We Are Hunted or or Twitter Music, which in a way proves what a poor job they have done because I'm an absolute music nut, and what I think is that it was a bit of a preemptive strike because I think the one of the, the biggest threats both to Facebook and Twitter is actually, are actually apps like Spotify because Spotify can grow out their social network from where they are at. Music's a very core part of the existence for many human beings on the planet. I'm actually quite surprised that's, that Spotify has done such a poor job of growing out their social network, they could really build a solid social media network around their app. So, I, I I wonder if Twitter understands this and they and they're a little bit worried by apps like Spotify, and that's why they tried to sort of get in on the game. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I actually would think that you know, to the point about if Twitter is trying to uh, actually monetize and if Twitter's trying to actually grow and get people very impressed with the platform and attract international users, then this is something that I actually feel like uh, is, is a little bit of a distraction uh, from what they're uh, trying to do. So that's just my opinion about it. I, I totally understand the whole defensive point, but uh, I mean, there are, there are organizations that are much larger than Firebrand, for instance, for instance, that I can't necessarily say I'm going to try to take defensive moves against because it's going to take Firebrand off of its uh, its course, right? So that's that, that's the way that I look at that, and I and I definitely definitely see your point. I just look at it and say we are hunted was wasn't bad. I don't think it was as good as Spotify. So then you know if Twitter's going to put resources into a music app, those are resources that it doesn't have to put into something else so it's kind of one of those things you do have to find a few finite things and figure out you're going to be good at that uh, i mean there's a reason why amazon doesn't try to be facebook because it would fail at that and in doing so it would be a worse amazon no, um, they're not trying to be Facebook yet, but uh, knowing Jeff Bezos, he's a he's a very interesting entrepreneur. We don't quite know what he's got up his sleeve, but I, I hear I hear your point. It's always, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you know, and and I think one actually one of uh, I think it was actually Dick Costello himself who actually said one of the challenges is knowing, um, you know, when to focus and when to embrace the risk and 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 open up, you know, and that is definitely. I know on a day-to-day basis, it's it's the question that I face a lot is when to go deeper in or when to go a little bit wider. And uh, that's the art to entrepreneurship, I guess. So, yeah, depth versus breadth in, uh, uh, in any endeavor. I mean, I think that that's uh, a key to entrepreneurship in general. Agreed. I mean, you have to know when you can actually diversify and do a few other things and do them well that won't take you off of your mission. And then likewise, when doing so, is just going to completely mess things up. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree with you in, in the sense of, uh, you know, we're backing that team and I, I'm going to buy some Twitter shares as well. I've got a little bit of Facebook shares and um, I think that... Uh, 
you, you know, they've still got a lot. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of risk points there. They're obviously far less mature than Facebook were when they uh, when they listed. Facebook were profitable when they listed, and and Twitter, their losses have been growing with each uh, revenue that grows. Their losses have been growing, which is always a a, a worrying trend. But uh, if they pull it off, they they're going to pull off a big one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, and you kind of took my point in a way. Um, it, it, it just in the sense that it doesn't, it like, like it, I want to say that if you were to ask people who follow not just social media, but the stock markets in general and say, was this rushed as an IPO? I think, and again, just my guess, you would get 90% of people to say, yes, this was rushed as an IPO. So, I mean, it, you know, time will tell. It doesn't mean that things are going to go poorly. It just means that, uh, that the business is a little bit less mature than you would like it to generally be before it has <laughs> before it goes to IPO stage. So, so yeah, I mean, it kind of does have tepid reviews in some ways from the market. I worry that, you know, they'll make some changes that won't go the right way and somehow it's just going to become a wasteland for celebrities and um, sports and TV and, uh, you, you know, that somehow that... Uh, that voice of the common person and and the the, the, the you know the, the the smart but lower profile um, um, academic or celebrity somehow is going to get uh, marginalized because somehow the the, the monetization model won't uh, take them into account or, or have a place for them. Yeah, you know, I I think it's 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 obviously something that it, to be concerned about. The reason why I'm not personally so concerned about it is that do you need a lot of hosting infrastructure to um, make Twitter work? Absolutely, you know, but you're not hosting video files. Um, you're, you're there are a lot of things that you're not doing. So Twitter can simply decide to stop growing and become a an also ran platform. But stick around. So, I mean, to me, the worst case scenario for Twitter is that it falls, but it doesn't fall to the extent that even MySpace did. Uh, and that it, it just winds up being in a position where it can never quite uh, combat uh, even like a Facebook or, or a LinkedIn, particularly in the States, for social supremacy. Worst case scenario, Jeremy and Kevin will, will chip in and we'll uh, buy it and rescue it and uh, breathe new life into it. What do you say? You know what? In, in all seriousness, yes, absolutely. In, uh, the, uh, well, the, once we save up just a little bit more, there have been a number of different Twitter-related startups build, built off of the API that have gone bust where I was like, you know what, I wish I had a little bit more in the bank account. I would love to have purchased a few and just uh, led them a little further down the line. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, hey, listen, let's uh, let's pull our funds and see where it takes us. Great. Talk, talking of uh, Facebook and Twitter, Facebook have been in the press this week for um, the tricky area of violent videos. They... Uh, used to allow violent videos and if, if it was um, you know saying it's promoting nonviolence and then they've they've been backflipping on their policy and uh, this week and to be honest I've actually lost track this week of of what their current policy is do you know much more about this at all yeah you know so the whole thing with the violent videos is actually something that uh, they made a relatively quiet decision about a while ago and then they did changed the decision apparently and then they backed off of it and this is one of those things that's uh, gotten a lot of attention i kind of 
think it's actually in some ways uh, a little bit uh, too much uh, attention. And I'll tell you why. Just because with with anything, I mean, with with any government, you have the ability to have rules, um, and then you have courts, and then you make decisions based off of that. And there's a there's an element of common sense, you know. So in the case of some of these uh, beheading videos, uh, you know. Th- then that that was that was where this whole um, violent content thing uh, basically uh, came about, and and there's context with things, right? So um, you know, basically, uh, a Facebook spokesman said uh, this week, I believe that Facebook was going to take a more holistic look at the whole context around an image, and not just uh, you know remove any violent uh, video, but remove content that celebrates violence. And I think that there finding their voice in this regard but it's it's not completely inconsistent it's uh it's it's something that they're trying to find the right amount of latitude they they they're big believers in free speech but i i think that they have an ethical underpinning that they're trying to attach to the platform i think there's nothing wrong with that so but yeah i mean i'm curious what you think do you think that this is a a major major misstep uh, or or is this just something that'll blow over pretty quickly Look, it's it's a tricky one. I mean, I see my friends on Facebook. I know a, a while ago there was a whole issue around uh, photos of women breastfeeding and um, that breached Facebook's policies. And I don't know if Facebook changed that or not, but I know a lot of my female friends on Facebook were posting around that. Um, this popped up, this whole beheading story popped up yesterday that someone was saying that Facebook's allowing to, uh, to show beheading videos. It's tricky. I mean, it's, I can understand from Facebook's point of view to have a scalable process to manage all of this is very, very hard. Where do you draw the line? Um, it's very challenging. My personal view is that I absolutely abhor violence of any shape, manner, or form. I'm, I, I don't know why Hollywood is, is fascinated with violence. I'm not quite sure what's behind all of that. But in the, in the Facebook um, context, it's, you know, these, these are moral issues that are are quite tricky because I can see instances where a violent video is showing why violence is bad and why we mustn't let this happen and why it's important to have a, a healthy, stable society, etc., or whatever the reason is. I almost think, you know, just thinking out aloud though, Jeremy, I almost think that Facebook needs some sort of council of elders, for lack of a better word, um, some, some independent or, or quasi-independent group that can set policy around this and perhaps even make some type of um, judgments around, uh, you know, content pieces? Yeah, you know, well, I'll tell you, I think that, uh, let's keep in mind that the vast majority of content is non-controversial and it's just very clear as to whether or not it should be up or shouldn't be up. I mean, I, I like the idea of the elders, and I think so many different companies and platforms could uh, definitely benefit from that. Maybe if we had one centralized group that every social platform could go to for advice, that would be a, not a bad way to go. I mean, in my opinion, if you get the right people in, and I think that governments could probably definitely benefit as well, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that the, the key thing is here um, is to be able to give... Uh, the user a little bit of insight as to uh, why something was taken down and why something else was left up, right? I mean, you have to let people know a little bit more about the process and explain your thinking. And if you do that, then 
and people will cut you a lot of slack if you accidentally take down the wrong thing. The key thing is just basically transparency with this uh, and uh, so, so that nobody basically gets upset and, and makes a stink uh, if they've clearly violated the rules. Of course, there's jurisdiction issues around this as well. Um, you know, in, in many countries, inciting free, freedom of speech is, is uh, you know, encouraged and, and um, an important part of, of laws, but anything that incites violence is uh, illegal as well or incites, um, you know, racial vilification or things like that. So um, Facebook have to do a, a bit of a tricky dance around this, the, the pointy edge of the controversial content. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's actually the same thing in a lot of ways that multinational corporations in general have to deal with when they're working across uh, borders, right? I mean, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, depending on the size of the social platform and the, the power of the platform, you know, you, you can actually see, I imagine, uh, a few governments making exceptions uh, for Facebook and for other platforms in order to operate within their borders. So basically allow, give it, giving exceptions just like they would give an exception to a, a multinational that they're trying to court to come into their country. They might give them tax exemptions, for instance. So, so I think that that's one of those things that as uh, like the Facebook's the Twitter's, uh, and, and I'm only speaking right now of U.S. platforms, but as they grow... And, and become almost more important than the, the social fabric within uh, the country, uh, it's going to be interesting to see who kind of holds the power in that relationship. And I think there needs to be a lot more dialogue and a lot more transparent dialogue, uh, you know, as you mentioned, as these platforms become so powerful. It's been pretty reactionary where the governments have had to kick up a stink, you know, about Twitter in the UK and now Facebook and the, and, and the beheadings. You know, there, there needs to be something more proactive, more well thought out. These platforms are here to stay. They're making, they, they make huge impacts and um, somehow we have to... Uh, um, sort of embed them into the into the policies and the lawmaking in a, in a more sensible way. Obviously, online bullying is a massive issue that's got to be dealt with as well. So all, all these issues are pretty important. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's really important, and it's not going away. And if you look at, uh, look at borders and how important borders were when you and I were born, right? So uh, look at them 20 years ago, then 10 years ago, and now, and just trying to imagine where this is going – is that borders are becoming an asterisk. You know, they're becoming something that's kind of important to note, um, you know, off to the side. Like, by the way, remember, I just crossed over from the U.S. to Canada. Or, oh, by the way, I'm going to be operating out of Germany tomorrow. But uh, they, they, they become something that's important to note, but not something that defines our lives. And more and more, uh, you know, we're defined by these things that, uh, like you and I, for instance, uh, like our conversation right now is borderless. I mean, Facebook is borderless, and and so on. So, so I think that that it's going to be something that uh, countries are going to have to deal with. Just like uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, and you, this is a little bit of an extreme analogy, but uh, if you can't get access to basic services in a country, you tend to have rebellion. And more and more access to a platform like Facebook is going to be seen as one of those basic needs, whether or not it should be, you know, that's a whole other matter. But this is how people are going to start to be thinking and, uh, and countries have to be adapting to this.
one of our um, one of our developers is from Iran, and and you know Iran's got a pretty um, the government has a pretty um, stringent attitude towards the internet, and they they uh, block all sorts of services. And um, he says that everyone in that country is an expert in VPNs. So uh, pe- people were people work out a way. He says even if you meet a cab driver, he'll he'll understand more about VPNs than uh, you know your your average person in Australia or America. So people will find a way to um, use these platforms and these services. And as they as they the the utility is 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 so um, significant and it becomes so fundamental in our lives. So I I, I agree. Um, speaking of content, um, there's an interesting. Um, service called Outbrain, Jeremy, that um, has been this has been sort of rising up on the radar over time, and I see yesterday that they've raised thirty-five million dollars, and they're even thinking about doing an IPO. Do you know much about Outbrain and and why they are being so successful and and what they do? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is actually like one of the key things uh, that. Uh, we've seen over the last few years is you have to be a D platform, okay? Uh, and and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I, I think that uh, that Facebook has become a platform when we talk about it that that everybody goes to, right? But that was uh, that's like five years ago. Then it became the platform that's embedded into everything you do, so that you see your Facebook activity and related stories, and how many of your friends have liked or shared a particular story. You see that all over the the internet, right? And that's kind of why uh, Outbrain is so important. Is it's a content uh, recommendation service, but it's been installed on all these different sites. I think that they they you know, it, it's it's in the hundreds of thousands or about a hundred thousand, and it has all these different uh, key premium publishers that it has deals with, right? So part of the key thing is that if you want your content uh, to be seen on the social web, Outbrain chances are has a very good uh, chance of being involved in that relationship. So I think it really uh, makes a lot of sense that Outbrain is having this degree of success. I mean, what do you think what do you think about it? I kind of feel that uh that that they've just had consistent growth uh and uh and and that they you know like IP, IPO can't be far away. They've raised a lot of money. They've got a lot of great, great momentum behind them. Look, to be honest, I don't know all that much about Outbrain and and if someone's listening and and probably hasn't heard of them but might have used them outbrain articles uh, appear at the bottom of uh, even you know CNN stories or um, a lot of big media companies at the bottom there's some recommended content but content from other sites that um, so related to the your semi-related to your to your story based based on your own. Do they do they look at your your um, your social graph or do they look at your cookies or how do they how do they base those recommendations on? Do you have any insight into that? You know, yes. Yeah, so I mean, part part of the the whole entire thing with the, with the outbrain is that it's tied to um, uh, content recommendations, largely from what you're reading right now. Um, so, so it's, it's basically tied into, uh, semantically, you know, the content of the article, that's one of the key things, but, but the company, the, the important thing is that the company is being funded, uh, because, uh, you know, they, they can include sponsored content. So just like Google can have a sponsored search result, um, they, they, they throw sponsored, uh, content in there in addition 
to all of these other, uh, you know, relevant organic uh, uh, pieces of content that they that they throw in there. And the key thing is, is if you ever, uh, for, first off, I'd say that anybody listening, there's a very good chance if you don't think you've seen Outbrain content, you know, chances are you have because it's branded in accordance with the site that you're that you're on right now. Um, and uh, so, so, so there's that. And then I think also the thing that's great about them is the relevancy is that if you ever read a, a content recommendation uh, from Outbrain, they tend to be very on the nose. It tends to be something that you look at and, and you're immediately like, oh, yeah, this is going to add value. And, and you click through um, and that uh, that provides value to, um, you know, to both ends, to to the referral and to the referee. So if CNN are using Outbrain and I'm reading a story about, um, I don't know, Twitter's IPO and CNN, what, and at the bottom it gives recommended stories from Outbrain, perhaps relating to other IPOs or, to, or, or tech stories, what does Twitter gain from having those recommended links? Is, uh, sorry, not Twitter. What does CNN gain by having those recommended stories? Just a better user experience for me, or do they get... Um, cost per clicks back trickling back to them yeah you know i mean one of the key things uh with it is that you can actually keep uh you know like to the points that you mentioned those are really good points but but there's also a lot of things that uh you can get uh like within cnn even for instance so uh taking cnn in, in particular they have uh from around the web and more from cnn and both of those are powered uh, you know, by Outbrain. So because of that, it's not it, it's not just uh, about sending people obviously away, uh, and uh, and you know CNN can monetize that to an extent. It's about the stickiness of the site. So instead of CNN just uh, organically saying, well, you know, there's one article, um, and and now we're going to have to figure out who uh, is going to, going to be interested in, in reading what afterwards. Outbrain, you know, puts their algorithm to work and then figures out based off of click through, uh, they figure out what are the most relevant articles uh, in order to put underneath there, right? So CNN doesn't have to hire anybody to figure out what are the recommendations to keep people on site. Um, and, and also Outbrain has data to prove that, uh, that their technology is able to keep people on site. So it's not just about off site. It really is for some of these premium guys uh, you know, the ability to keep people on site so that then they can monetize that and serve up more ads, uh, you know, relevant to their, um, to their target audience. And if I'm a publisher, I can publish on Outbrain and pay money to have a promoted story that will push through to platforms that have signed up to Outbrain. Yep, exactly. So I, I think that it's one of those things where uh, it's very easy to be able to prove that, that that you're adding value or not if you're outbrain. And I think, by the way, that that's kind of ties into our conversation about Twitter before, is that you have to be able to, if you're selling a service, I mean, and we know this, uh, you know, based off of our backgrounds, but you have to be able to show uh, that that there was some value, you know, that you're generating for that. So if you can just pull something around and say, listen, this is what we generated for you. That's a great place uh, to be if you're a service provider. And if you can't do that, you know, maybe you should be uh, working in a different field, right? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, ultimately, ultimately, it's all about um, 
revenues, profits. Um, I always get confused in America, you guys. We, we use turnover here and profits. You guys, is it revenue the equivalent of turnover in America? I always get confused between your revenue and earnings usage. Yeah, yeah. Reven you, no, you're right. So revenue, turnover, and then I guess just profit is profit, right? Um, do you guys not call profit earnings? You know, we, I mean, we call profit profit, but maybe it's, uh, you know, no, I mean, it, 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 I've seen people refer to different words in different ways. I mean, I actually, you know, talk, talking about percent growth with people, that's all another issue. Um, you can get into long arguments with people how to even, uh, but, but this isn't the financial podcast. So I'll, I'll leave that off to the side. Yeah, yeah you've, you've always got to be very careful what the, what the numbers are, are, are representing. Um, Jeremy, let's take a small break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you um, about your book, Going Social, what's all that about, and um, Firebrand Group, you, but you're based in New York, so you're no doubt doing some interesting work with some interesting companies. I'd like to hear about what's the, um, what are the trends and, and where um, people are getting all their exciting ROI. So let's take a short ba uh, break, and we'll back, be back uh, with Jeremy Goldman from Firebrand Group uh, in a couple of minutes. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber and the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 28, Friday, the 25th of October, 2013. We're nearly into the second last month of the year. Uh, crazy, scary. Um, I don't like how time speeds up as you get older. But anyway, we haven't uh, developed an app to slow it down yet, but maybe one day. Um, my special guests... This podcast is Jeremy Goldman, who's the author of Going Social and founder and CEO of Firebrand Group in New York City. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about your book, Going Social. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So Going Social, I wrote from uh, my years experience uh, managing social media and e-commerce, particularly uh, within the beauty industry. Uh, and and what, I, I started looking at the, some of the books that were on the market uh, with the respect to social media, and there were a lot, obviously, but uh, I saw a lot that were, uh, I'd say, like on the advanced side, and then a lot for beginners. But I didn't really see something that that to to me had had something for everyone, where it it gave you a little bit of the the underpinnings behind the thought that has to go into social media. So not just necessarily here's how to put up a Facebook post and here's how to promote it, but also why do you want to promote it? And what, what is that analogous to, uh, to interacting in the real world? You know, I wanted people to understand some of the social psychology that goes behind people interacting online. So, so I actually kind of wrote it from that perspective uh, and you know, at the time, I was somebody working on the brand side for you know a number of different beauty brands over the years, uh, and not really from the side of I'm a guy with a consulting company and I'm trying to get some business out of you. And then, lo and behold, uh, afterwards, I wound up uh, starting a consulting business. So go figure. But um, uh, yeah, so 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 I really tried to write that with also real world examples. 
uh, of all different types of businesses, and I tried to stray as far away as I could from any business that uh, had ever been featured in a in a book of that uh, of the kind. So you know, there are certain examples that everybody tried to cite uh, all at once, and uh, and 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 by the way, I love a lot of the books out there, but I tried to bring new. Um, uh, insights from nonprofits, from small businesses, personal brands, large conglomerates, uh, and and just uh, cover a little bit on each major uh, social platform as I uh, saw it. So from uh, Google Plus, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And there's nothing better than getting somebody to just give me a random shout out saying, you know, I loved your book. I follow the blog now, and it's been really helpful in helping me achieve uh, what I'm what, what I'm going after. So it's been a trip. That's great, and I think people do struggle with starting points, particularly you know people that are, are have been traditional marketers and 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 they're struggling to make the transition, or, or people just starting out, and 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 someone that is right in the middle and has uh, practical advice, because there's a lot of noise in our industry, and there's a lot of there's a lot of, um, you know, sizzle that's not quite sure if there's how much substance is behind it. So, so people, we, we hear it the whole time. I'm, I'm always having conversations at parties about with people as, as what they should do. So um, I, I'm now going to recommend your book. Maybe we can, uh, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get some signed copies from you. Oh, yeah. Hey, absolutely. That'd be great. Um, tell us, so you've then um, now actually helping out companies with their their social um, initiatives um, tell us a little bit about uh, you know what's working what's not working the the the, the landscape's changing a lot very quickly um, you know one day pinterest is up and then it's not and then you know and twitter now you can buy ads and facebook promoted posts What's what's the lay of the land? What's what's really working for your clients? Um, what are you noticing in terms of trends at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. I, I think one of the key things that's uh, that's really working uh, is is understanding the, the kind of taking a step back and understanding why are we in social as businesses in the first place. And I think that you know it, it's a very nice thing to say. You just have to talk. You know, go online and talk to your customers and, and you're going to be a billionaire in a few minutes. And I try to tell people, no, that's not going to happen. And there are, you know, snake oil salesmen that are going to try to convince you of that. But uh, ultimately, let's remember that this comes back to uh, to business value. And you have to think, well, to what end am I going to be engaging on Twitter and Facebook? It's not just to talk. It's, uh, you know, maybe you've got one social platform where your main goal is to listen uh, and, and to develop new insights that you can uh, turn into new products, um, which is then going to improve your revenue or earnings or profit, <laughs> however we refer to it, right? Um, and that that's one key thing that I think that people have to always be looking at is what is the business value that's going to be yielded by um, you know what, whatever social platform, whatever social campaign they're trying to run, uh, it has to tie back to that. And I think that the businesses that are succeeding, and obviously that's kind of what we bring to the businesses that we work with, is bringing that type of guidance. Is not just uh, you know we we have people come to us and say, listen, we're not on Twitter yet. Um, we have no time to uh, tweet. Here's our account. Just go tweet. And we just 
you know, nicely say no, that's not what we do, uh, because we want to take a strategic stance on it and figure out what type of business value is this going to yield. And it, and it really has to go back to that. Do you think um, every business needs to go hard on social? I mean, do you, do you feel that, that it has reached a point where you necessarily will be left behind unless you're going pretty hard on social? You know, it, I mean, it, obviously, when you're going to say every, I mean, it's hard to say that every business should have anything. I mean, there are businesses that can probably operate without a phone. There are just not that many of them, right? So I think that that's kind of the same principle here is that uh, you have to be looking at it from that perspective and saying most businesses can benefit from social. I have companies who come to me who are uh, B2B, you know, and just because they're business to business, they say, well, social is not for me because businesses aren't on social. It's just people. I'm like, that's not true. You're a business and you're on social. So why would you not think that there aren't other businesses to connect with online? If anything, it's better if you're a B2B business because you're not focusing on the numbers, you're not trying to get 30,000 followers, you're trying to get 30 of the proper followers. So, so I think that that's kind of one key thing that, uh, that definitely has to be addressed there is, uh, is, 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 yes, you should probably be on social, but it can, be, it, it can mean something different to you. You don't necessarily have to be doing the same thing on social that everybody else is. Jeremy, we need more than LinkedIn though. This is a bugbear of mine. I don't mean to pick on LinkedIn. I use it, but um, you know, in the business, in the B two B, and in that whole you know enterprise space, social space, we need more than LinkedIn. I'm not quite sure what it is, but when I'm in the shower, I'm brainstorming something that breathes more life into enterprise social than LinkedIn does. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that LinkedIn is definitely and, and, and part of it might actually be the market penetration where you are, um, you know, versus in, in the States, because I think that, uh, you know, obviously it's it, 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 it's very, very uh, popular, uh, you know, obviously over, over in the States. There are what, what I would say is actually um, the business value. You, you do raise a pretty good point in that the business value for uh, you know, creating a five million dollar deal, that's so important that somebody would potentially uh, sign up for five different social networks from a professional standpoint. It doesn't all have to be LinkedIn. I think the problem is is that for most people, they'd say LinkedIn is doing a great job at innovating and creating new features that are relevant uh, on an ongoing basis. That there's just no way for somebody else to catch up and and create a meaningful niche. So I think in the consumer market, you know, with Facebook, it does become a lot harder to compete, and that's why you see probably a lot of platforms like Path say, you know, what we're going to be something else because we can't be Facebook, and those are probably the ones that are going to uh, succeed over on that side. I always feel though, you know, in terms of products, I, I'm more of a product guy, not really a you know, consulting sort of strategic um, guy. And from a product perspective, I always get frustrated if people are just indifferent to products. To me, if, you, if you're not passionate and you don't really almost look forward to logging into that product, as a product person, you've almost failed. And LinkedIn, for all the utility that they provide, and people say, yeah, you know, it's really useful to connect, to do biz dev, to recruit, but do they get that little 
buzz inside them just as you're about to log in. And I don't know anyone that does. I don't. And that leaves me thinking that there's, there's, there's some value that's been left on the table. You know, it's interesting. I see what you mean about that. I think that part of it is also, and you know this as a product guy, a little bit of a, a life cycle question. I mean, it all depends where you are in the life cycle. I mean, I don't get excited about drinking water for the most part anymore, but I will purchase the bottled water. I don't think twice about it. Um, and sometimes that can be a good thing is it's become so ubiquitous and such an underpinning in your life. So, I mean, I, I, I noticed that I, I grab my uh, phone and I'll admit it on at work, you know, I'll pick up my phone and on the, on the way to, you know, the restroom, I'll be checking my Instagram because I don't have that much time for Instagram. So those 45 seconds as I'm walking there and then the 45 seconds walking back, you know, that's my Instagram time. And it's, do I look forward to it? Sure. But it's just become a, a, a habit of mine and they can monetize that habit, you know, the, the, the more that I'm spending uh, on it. I mean, the key thing is, is you have to make sure that it's good enough and it's something that's providing value that, uh, that's, that's going to encourage people to keep using it at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, I agree. There is that novelty value does wear off eventually. I think, I think I've always just had a bit of an issue with LinkedIn's UI. There's something that's, that's um that, that's you know it doesn't uh could be could be a lot better in my view and that's that that sort of drives me away a little bit but um yeah interesting interesting times uh, uh um jeremy i think we we're out of time i know it's it's late your end um i've been speaking with jeremy goldman who's the author of going social i'll put links up to um the book he's also the founder and ceo of firebrand group Jeremy is on all the social media networks, I would imagine. Are you on all of them? Uh, you know, that. yeah, there might be one or two that I don't know about yet. I, I kind of doubt that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all into parking at Chera Marketer when, wherever I can. So um, that's where you, can, you guys can find me. And please, I'd, I'd love to chat. And to really appreciate your time. And um, we look forward to staying in touch with you in the future, Jeremy. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on episode 28. Bye-bye.